Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we'll go through our usual format today with a news roundup up front. And in the news roundup, we'll cover three news stories. Uh, first of all, the news that BlackBerry is killing its classic device, which is the one that looks most like sort of the early Blackberries with a physical keyboard and so on. Um, we'll also talk about some of the uh, mixed messages BlackBerry sending around whether BlackBerry 10 as an operating system will survive. Uh, secondly, we'll talk about the fact that Comcast is now going to have Netflix on its set-top boxes later this year. So that's a move that's been in the works for a long time. But we'll talk about the significance of that. And then thirdly, uh, as part of a piece for the Wall Street Journal, Joanna Stern revealed that um, she believes, based on sources, that the iPhone that launches in September will start at 32 gigabytes rather than 16, so a higher storage tier something that people have been calling for for a long time. So we'll talk through that change and the significance of that. Uh, Secondly, we'll do our question of the week. And so Aaron spent some time preparing for this one. But the question here is, uh, what new health sensors might we expect in the new Apple Watch that we're expecting to launch in the fall and by implication in smartwatches in general in the near future? So we'll talk through uh, what we might see there. Obviously, health and fitness has been a major focus for the Apple Watch from the beginning. We'll talk about how that could change over time. And then our third segment, we're going to talk about this uh, unfortunate news recently that somebody who was using the autopilot feature on a Tesla um, crashed and unfortunately was killed in that crash and talk about some of the fallout from that over the last few days and um, discuss what this says kind of about the future direction of uh, autonomous driving, self-driving cars and so on. And then we'll wrap up as usual with a weekly pick and I'll have a recommendation there. So let's kick off with our news roundup. And first off, uh, was this news that BlackBerry is discontinuing what it calls the Classic, which is one of its devices. It's got a fairly small portfolio of devices these days. Uh, But the Classic is the one that's most sort of like the sort of vision that you have of what a BlackBerry looks like, which is a keyboard device. Uh, It does still have another device with a keyboard, which is the Priv that runs Android rather than the BlackBerry 10 uh, operating system. But this has just kind of fueled um, these ongoing reports that BlackBerry is getting ready to either abandon devices altogether or um, BlackBerry 10 devices specifically. So Aaron, what was your reaction to this? Well, you know, it just brings me back to those early days of the iPhone when it was announced and how everybody, uh, it felt like everybody was discounting it because it didn't have a physical keyboard and that you would never comfortably be able to type on the screen. And this is such a symbolic moment, right, in that way that the keyboard is... Uh, that the classic BlackBerry with the keyboard is is now officially dead, even though it's been unofficial for years now. It's officially dead. It, it just, it's so funny how poorly we seem to be able to predict, you know, what's going to matter to people in the future when it comes to consumer technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think John Gruber had a quote from back in two thousand and eight saying, um, from from Mike Lazaridis of of what was then RIM saying. You know, the hot new feature on smartphones is physical keyboards. Um, and, you know, for a while it did seem incredibly important. And, and yet, you know, things move on and, and people get used to new ways of working and so on. And, um, you know, the, the issue here isn't so much that they're not making one with a keyboard anymore, but just that it constantly fuels these reports that they're going to get out of devices altogether. And my theory on this is that BlackBerry will get out of devices in the next year or two. Uh, but they have to be very careful about the messaging around it because as soon as you announce that you're killing things off, nobody wants to buy them anymore. And um, they still have a fair amount of inventory of all the current portfolio right now. And so they have to message this very carefully where they perhaps signal that things are winding down but without making an official announcement. And they've issued fairly frequent denials that BlackBerry 10 as an operating system is going away, for example. But, um, you know, it very much seems like the writing's on the wall at this point. Uh, So our second news roundup topic is uh, Comcast and Netflix working together to put Netflix on Comcast set-top boxes. Um, This is interesting because obviously Netflix is a competitor to Comcast and other cable and pay TV companies. Uh, Interesting too because uh, Netflix has been on some set-top boxes in other countries and on some smaller cable operators but not on, on Comcast previously. It also I think has to be seen in the context of Um, some work that's being done at the Federal Communications Commission at the moment to try to open up set-top boxes and create competition in set-top boxes. And I think this is another effort by Comcast to say, hey, look, you know, under the current set-top box model, we already have openness. You can now get Netflix on our box and so on. And so I think it's partly a defensive move by Comcast against that sort of threat of regulation apart from anything else. But what was your take on this? I think there's another value in it in that um, there's going to be less device switching 
um, which will keep people on the input that has their Comcast box plugged in. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that you know, because people already have plenty of ways to view Netflix, even just on their television. I mean, if they've got a Roku or an Apple TV, um, if they've got uh, a smart TV, which most people have by now. I mean, most people have had the ability to watch Netflix on, you know, the built into the television. And so, but the problem with that is it requires fiddling with a remote to switch inputs so that you're getting to where you can view Netflix. I think, you know, I, I'm thinking, for example, so we have a TiVo at home, and then we also have an Apple TV the newest generation one. When we got the newest generation Apple TV, we found ourselves using the TiVo less and less. And part of it has to do with the fact that we don't have to switch inputs to use Netflix. And uh, and and that uh, and, and so that that level of convenience, I think, will keep people tuned in, depending on how it's implemented. But will keep people on the input that has their Comcast box, and that's I think a, a net gain for Comcast. Yeah, absolutely, and good for Netflix too, to the extent that it's going to be more easily available between you know an interface that people are using regularly for other forms of TV too. And if they do this right with things like Universal Search and so on, then presumably you'll be able to use the voice remote that comes with the X1 uh, set-top box and pull up Netflix content as well as whatever else might be available through you know the Comcast TV service. And so it's good for both parties, really, kind of a win-win. Um, an interesting move, sort of indicative of this sort of way the power shifted in, in all of this over the last few years. It definitely shows the power of, of cord cutting and how much that's accelerating. Yeah. Um, our third news roundup topic is is this uh, story that was from the Wall Street Journalist Joanna Stern, who's one of the tech writers at the Wall Street Journal, who did a piece in which she was basically saying, "Don't ever buy an iPhone between June and September," which is just basic common sense, but. In the context of that piece, she also kind of reviewed a lot of what we think we know about the next iPhone, and some of that was stuff that Wall Street Journal's reported before, including the, the headphone jack going away, which we've discussed on a previous episode. Um, but the one thing that was new, which was sort of buried in the article, was um, that she quoted sort of sources familiar with the matter or whatever as saying that the entry-level iPhone would now come with 32 gigabytes rather than 16 gigabytes of storage. Yeah, I think that has the potential to help bump the the upgrade cycle this time around because there are all these rumors about how the iPhone 7 is not going to be um, physically all that different with the exception of the headphone jack going away maybe a bigger camera or a better camera but um, but I think this is a chance for people to this could be an impetus that would encourage a lot of upgraders um, you know going from 16 to 32 gigs in iOS does make a pretty measurable difference and if you can make that bump at the price of a six of what used to be a 16 gig iPhone, I, I can picture a lot of people making the jump at that point. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. It's not sort of the hardware feature that you think of as driving upgrades, but you know it could be a way to replace an older iPhone with a new one at the same price, but with twice the storage, which you haven't been able to do before. Um, we talked about some of those other changes that are reported for the iPhone 7, I think, two episodes ago, episode 52. So. If you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to have a listen. It was the third segment on that episode. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting in the context of an iPhone that looks like it's going to be f f uh, visually quite similar. Uh, we're starting to get you know, a longer list now of things that might be different in the internals. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out come September. Well, let's move on to our question of the week, which, as I said up front, is what new health sensors might we expect in Apple Watch 2? And so Aaron spent time preparing uh, doing some research on this and uh, so we're going to talk through this and obviously we're focusing on the Apple Watch 2 because that's kind of a known thing that we're expecting to be updated in the fall but the reality is obviously a lot of the same stuff will end up coming to other smartwatches as well so we're talking sort of by implication about smartwatches in general and how they might move forward so I'm just going to start out by pitching that question at you Aaron what new sensors could we expect come the fall? Probably none. <laughs> right that was quick. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I have a lot more to talk about, but I, I think the reality is, is there probably won't be any new health sensors and the new Apple Watch, uh, based on the research that I've been doing anyway. And and before we move on, I mean, we ought to recognize that the watch already has a decent number of sensors that have health significance: an accelerometer and gyroscope, for example, to sense motion and activity levels; a barometer to sense elevation gains, so it knows if you're climbing steps. Um, you know, or hiking up a mountain, um, and obviously the heart heart rate monitor, which is still, uh, you know, one of the best in class as far as heart rate monitors go when it comes to wearables. I mean, this is a 
this is actually a pretty advanced device and Apple took an approach to heart rate monitoring that really no other wearable was doing at the time. So the truth of it is it, it, the watch has still got a lot going on when it comes to sensors related to health or fitness. Um, the, the thing, it, the, the problem is that most of these are not exciting because you know, these were already already in the iPhone in the case of the accelerometer and the gyroscope, or they were already in other wearables um, in the case of the other uh, sensors. And so there's not, so it's neat that the sensors are there, um, but I just think we're not like wowed by them, whereas, you know, people were expecting a revolutionary device that could, that could do a lot more things. So the reason it's not doing more things is because those other things are really hard to do. It turns out that all the other things that might get measured are just harder to measure. Um, in addition to that problem, the Apple has uh, uh, concerns when it comes to FDA approval because using the watch as a health device anytime it's providing health or behavioral advice the way a doctor would, um, Apple runs into problems and they're already kind of you know, close to the line as it is when it comes to the FDA. So I yeah. So the answer right now is probably no new sen health sensors. Right, and I think Tim Cook specifically was asked about this in an interview in the Daily Telegraph a while back and kind of said that they wanted to try to avoid situations in which they'd be subject to FDA approval because that introduces a whole level of kind of unpredictability into you know what is normally a very tightly controlled sort of product rollout. Right. So if we're not expecting anything anytime soon, are there other sensors that might kind of be on the horizon a little bit later on, sort of coming in a future version to some extent? There, there are. Um, there are interesting ideas and directions that, that Apple can take this. And, and I think it's important we draw a distinction between the watch as a health device versus a fitness device more specifically, because there are some sensors and measurements that are useful from a health perspective, but we don't think of them generally when it comes to the watch because the watch gets such an emphasis from a fitness perspective, right? And so when I say fitness, I'm talking about diet and exercise. Um, but there are a lot of health device uses or applications for the watch that are interesting. But again, that brings us back to the FDA rules. Uh, just before the Apple Watch came out, the FDA updated its rules for these kinds of devices, like wearable devices, and it basically said that there's no approval needed as, as long as it's the, the device is providing information related to things like weight management, fitness, relaxation, stress relief. Uh, what else is in the mess? Mental stimulation, self-help, sleep, or sex. Um, they can also provide basic information on vitals like pulse, breathing rate, and, and other things like that, as long as they're not giving medical advice. And that's the problem Apple has, is the watch is clearly intended to be a device that give, that advises you on your health. That's what the activity circles are all about, for example. And so to provide this sort of information on the wrist when it comes to health and not just fitness generally, um, they're running up against those FDA rules. That said, there are interesting ways that there are a few interesting things that it could sense potentially in the future, um, but they would be really hard to do. One is uh, is uh, essentially ECG or EKG, like electrocardiogram, which senses heart stress. There have actually been a lot of people confused, confusing that with the heart rate sensor that's already in the watch. A heart rate sensor just essentially detects beats at peak, whereas uh, an ECG senses the electrical impulses created by your heartbeats, which tells you a lot more about your heart health than just a heart rate does. And it's a way you can actually also detect heart stress, which can be an early predictor of things like a heart attack or a stroke. Um, ECG is, is hard to detect, however, um, and the reason is because you essentially are detecting a, an electrical current passing through. It's hard to imagine that being on the watch ever in the future because it's, you know, the, the two points of contact for the electrical measure would be so close together, it would be hard to detect the electrical impulses being generated by the heart. Um, blood pressure is an interesting one. Um, blood pressure is a strong predictor of all kinds of health problems. Obviously, for a blood pressure measure to work, the wristband would have to essentially become a cuff. Um, and also, you'll notice that when most uh, nurses or other medical practitioners are, are, are measuring blood pressure, they don't do it at the wrist. They do it higher up on the arm, and there are obviously measurability reasons for that. Um, another interesting idea is to measure hydration. Um, this, is a, this is a health problem, especially for the elderly, um, who can be bad at monitoring their own hydration levels, um, you know, especially if they happen to be living alone. Um, uh, times where it's really hot and other times um, 
you know, but in terms of sensors there, there's not anything really obvious on the horizon, um, but uh, it would be an interesting direction to take it. The, the reality is, as a health device, not just as a fitness device, but as a health device more generally, the best stuff you can learn is through blood measurements. And those have a ton of potential because you get all kinds of information that directly relates to health outcomes. Like, for example, blood lipids, like the amount of different kinds of fat that are in your blood, um, are really strong predictors for all sorts of, of ailments but those are really hard to do. In fact, I think Theranos is the, is, is the perfect cautionary tale here, right, where they were trying to build a pretty large device, that, but, but small in the sense that it could fit inside of Walgreens, and you could have a tiny amount of blood drawn there and then have all this advanced blood work done. You know, they're in really hot water right now because their machine isn't doing anything close to what was promised, and in fact, it turns out a bunch of their blood results, their test results, it turned out to be incorrect. Um, and they're now under investigation for it. And so it's hard to imagine uh, any more health sensors in that sense coming to the Apple Watch. But as a fitness device, there are a few more interesting ones. Um, but the problem is, as a fitness device, is getting the watch to sense it again through your wrist. And that's because people have hairy arms, they have dry skin, they wear their watch band at different levels of tightness. Some people like it loose, some people you know, we'll wear it really tight. That said, there are a few interesting things that, that the watch could sense when it comes to fitness. And one of them that I think is the most interesting is, is the oxygen saturation of your blood. And so most people, when they are breathing normally and healthy, will have 95% to 100% oxygen saturation in their bloodstream. When you exercise, that can actually go down if, uh, you know, under certain conditions. And, uh, um, this could have interesting fitness uh, benefits to measure this. Um, the, in fact, the, 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 the heart rate sensor that's in the current watch has the, the ability to also measure blood oxygen saturation, but uh, it was disabled. And nobody knows why, and this was revealed in a teardown that iFixit did of the watch, and nobody knows why, but the speculation is either that measuring that and reporting on that was crossing the FDA line, hmm or alternatively that it was just too hard to, that it just wasn't accurate enough because of yeah. you know the problems we said before about hairy arms and dry skin and, and loose watch bands. But that's an interesting one from the fitness perspective is whether or not the next version they will have sort of overcome those measurability problems mm. and uh, maybe turn that feature on. Yeah, no, I mean, the second of those definitely seems to make more sense as an explanation. As I understand it, and you've just done the research, so correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, it's either diagnostic or prescriptive stuff that falls under the FDA's remit. So if all you're doing is just measuring and then letting people kind of draw their own conclusions from it, then that's right. fine. But it's once you actually start telling people, because we measured this, it means you have condition X or Y or whatever. Or if you start saying, um, you know, you need to do this, um, from a health perspective, you know, take right. these medicines or whatever, that's when you start getting into hot water, right? Right. And you can imagine blood ox saturation being on the borderline like that. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there's a local company in Utah uh, that designed a, a, a booty for babies because of SIDS, right? That's, a, right? that's an example where you're measuring blood oxygen saturation is a really, really critical thing. And, uh, and so this little booty is this really awesome thing that some BYU students designed. Um, but they've had to go through pretty heavy FDA approval processes to get that approved. And so you can see how this could go on either side of the line, depending on how Apple treated it. Um, an interesting one that uh, is somewhat related to this, an interesting alternative measure that could be done with a sensor is what's called the electrodermal response, or EDR for short. And that essentially tracks sweating, um, like how much moisture is being produced by your skin. Um, now... From a fitness perspective, that's interesting, obviously, because the more you sweat, the more energy your body tends to be producing, and then it could maybe get a sense, a better, more accurate sense of your activity levels. Um, but the problem is you could also just be sitting outside on a hot day, right. or you could be really stressed out because EDR is actually used to measure stress, not just physical activity. In fact, EDR is one of, the one of the sensors used in like um, lie detectors. Right. And so, it, so 
So measuring stress levels is one of the things that EDR can do, but it would also be a, a potentially interesting way to measure calorie burn. Mm. I have no idea, though, what other variables would have to be at work, and it seems like it would be, based on what I've read and learned about it, it seems like measuring calorie burn reliably with the EDR um, uh, would would take huge, huge, huge amounts of data to be able to, you know, create accurate predictions. And And the reality is, is calorie burn has always been a, a loose science. And uh, to measure calorie burn accurately, you tend to have to be hooked up to some pretty hardcore equipment. So, um, you know, there are other interesting ideas like measuring body fat, um, uh, again, blood pressure, and then kind of the holy grail would be measuring blood sugar levels, um, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, but that's probably never going to happen on a watch um, right. unless there are some, some major changes in how it connects to your body. Um, and so the, the truth is we're probably not going to, based on all those things that might be on the horizon, we're probably still not going to get any of those in, in the next version of the Apple Watch, with the one exception maybe being the blood oxygen saturation, but it, it, but it wouldn't surprise me if the next teardown that iFixit does, you know, the Apple Watch 2 shows that that's actually been removed as mm -hmm. they've refined the, the, the heart rate monitor or something. Right. So it, it all comes down to just the reality that there are only so many useful measures that can be done on a person's wrist. That ultimately is the limitation of the Apple Watch when it comes to being a, uh, you know, a, a device that senses aspects of your health. Right. And that, that then raises the question of, you know, could there be other things that Apple could do that are not in the watch itself? And either they tie back to the watch or they tie to the phone instead. So some other sensor that either made by Apple or potentially by third parties that sort of hooks into the Apple Watch or to the iPhone and then provide some of that data from other parts of the body, from other sorts of measurements that you can't easily make on the wrist. Yes, and in fact, that that's what's, I think, more exciting when it comes to this sensor technology is the stuff that would be external, but then talk to your watch or your phone for that matter. And the reality is that there's already a rapidly growing family of devices from third parties making that happen. But before we get to the third parties, we ought to mention that that the phone, the iPhone is already an interesting external sensor uh, that works with the Apple Watch when it comes to health issues. And there are two examples that Apple has highlighted before. One is an app called Empower, which measures uh, uh, the, per the progress of Parkinson's in patients. And so they have some, they, they essentially have touch tests on the screen of an iPhone. And it also works in conjunction with the Apple Watch, and it will detect the increasing of certain symptoms of, uh, uh, you know, certain aspects of developing Parkinson's. And so uh, you can essentially see the, the, the degradation of motor skills, for example, is, you know, related to the Parkinson's that a patient might be suffering from. And so that, that uses the larger touch screen on an iPhone rather than the one that you'd have on a watch. And, uh, and, and that's an example of, you know, I mean, these are not these are not new sensors, but these are new applications in a, in in an area of health that's I think exciting. And another one related to that is an app called Autism and Beyond. Again, another one that Apple is highlighting that actually uses the camera in the iPhone to do facial recognition stuff to figure out and and hopefully create more early detection of of autism in children. Because, you know, as 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 you probably know, autism is symptoms generally don't manifest until you know uh, uh, well they don't basically they're not detectable at birth generally like it, it takes a year or so before autism symptoms start to show up in children and so the idea of using the the camera on, a, on an iPhone to help detect that is pretty fascinating but when it comes to third-party devices and sensors for that there are already a lot out there I mean so I mentioned that glucose measurement is kind of the holy grail because it really is an early, it, it really is a, a, an important predictor, especially for people that might be developing or are in the early stages of type 2 diabetes, um, which has dramatic, dramatic health consequences. And uh, there's a company called Dexcom that has developed a sensor. Um, it's, it's essentially a, a subcutaneous needle. So it's a really, it's a hair thin needle that goes under your skin and then attaches to a receiver, and then you also need it by the transmitter. Um, and these get taped to your body, and then they can transmit to the phone and the watch, to to the iPhone and the Apple Watch, to, to give you a constant monitoring. 
of your blood glucose levels. Now, for somebody who's diabetic, that is a fantastic thing. Diabetes runs in my in my wife's side of the family, and we have family members with diabetes, and one of them has a a, a personal has a, a constant blood glucose monitor, and it is it's it it. It is so incredibly useful for someone who's diabetic to have constant monitoring of, of, of blood glucose levels because you get much more immediate feedback into what kinds of food or activities um, can affect your, your blood sugar in what ways. And it can, it can help alter your diet. It can do all kinds of, it help alter your activities and all sorts of things. Just having that constant monitoring where you can get immediate response um, to, to, you know, whatever behaviors you're engaged in. Um, and so that Dexcom thing is exciting. The problem is now it's really expensive. I think you're, you know, you're, you know, you're in at something like $900 with all the different, you know, pieces of hardware you need to pull this off. Um, blood pressure is an interesting one. There's a cuff by a company called iHealth that will talk to the phone, iPhone and Apple Watch. Um, it's a cuff that slides up over your arm. It's not the sort of thing you could wear all day, every day, but it is something you could keep handy. Um, uh, we talked about uh, ECG measures. There's a company called the LiveCore that has developed two really kind of cool devices for, for, for measuring uh, ECG activity. One is... Uh, sort of like a flat strip that attaches to the back of the iPhone and it has two metal plates on it. You touch one with either finger and then you get an ECG measure essentially passed through your arms. Um, that one, it turns out, is not as accurate as the ECG measure you get when you have like the, the you know, the, the stickers attached all over your body, including on your chest. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we someday see a, a chest attached ECG monitor that talks to the watch. Um, the body fat percentage is an interesting one. That already exists too. Withings has a scale, and there are a lot of other scales out there that uh, that can measure body fat percentage in a rough way through the conductivity that essentially passes through your feet when you step on the scale. And the body temperature is also an interesting one. And, and Withings again has the um, uh, called I think it's the Thermo, which is a, a hundred dollar thermometer that uh, talks to the iPhone and Apple Watch. So the, I, I guess, I, I mean, these are all just illustrations of how there are already a lot of third parties that are developing sensor devices that then can talk to the watch and the, and the iPhone to, to help you better monitor your health. Great. So I guess to come back to the original question, does this mean that the Apple Watch as it is is kind of the pinnacle of where we're going to get to as far as ability to sense and provide useful sort of health and fitness data? It's not really going to advance much beyond that, or is there more beyond sensors or using the current sensors that, that the Apple Watch could do going forward with better software, for example? Well, that's kind of the thing, right? I mean, everybody has been thinking, like before the watch came out, I think everybody's expecting these magic sensors that could tell you everything you ever want to know about your health. And, and then reality sunk in when everybody's like, oh, it's a heart rate monitor. Um, and, and that was kind of it. And, and these are, again, just limitations for all the reasons we've already talked about. But the watch, I think, still has a ton of potential as a health and fitness device in a way that goes beyond just having sensors attached to your body. I think it, when we think about the device, just when we think about the watch as just a sensor device, we ignore the value of self-reported data that's made a lot easier and more reliable because of the convenience of having a computer attached to your wrist. I mean, so much of our health or fitness has to do with things that are behaviorally measured rather than physiologically measured. And they have a lot more to do with sort of what, what choices we make throughout the day rather than, you know, what health measures happen to be spiking or not spiking at a certain time of day. And so it's what we eat. It's how active we are. It's, it's, it's how well we sleep. That, it, that Those measures are, are, are really interesting and important for predicting our health outcomes. And so if you think about the Apple Watch, it's already pretty good at measuring activity levels, right? I mean, everybody raves about the, the activity rings and, and what a difference they make. And I can't even count anymore the number of times I've heard people with a watch say, oh, I've lost five pounds because of you know wearing the Apple Watch. And those rings can be really motivating. And I think that's an example of the convenience of having a computer on your wrist that that can do basic sensing like activity, but also has a lot to do with just changing your behavior and encouraging better 
you know, physical activity. Food tracking, I think, is a really interesting area that um, still has, it's a nut that hasn't really been cracked, in my opinion. It's still really fiddly, is the problem, because if you've ever used a, a food tracking app, you know, it's really good for your health to do it. Uh, but the problem is, is it's a mess. And so I think one of the best out there is MyFitnessPal. I mean, it really is a great app. But you have to go in and tap on your screen and tap again and again and type in a search term to find the food and, and then go through a long list of potential foods that might you know line up with whatever it was that you just ate or are planning to eat. And food tracking is, is still fiddly to the point of being really discouraging uh, for people to engage in it, even though it is a helpful behavior. I think a better way to do that based on having a computer on your wrist would be amazing. Siri alone, for example, could make a, hu a huge difference because if I could just tell Siri that I just ate something and then Siri finds, you know, a list of options for me and then and then I could say, you know, um, and, and then I could give it feedback without having to, like, tap on a screen, I, I think that could be potentially really cool. The, the, the reality is, is food tracking, the benefit of food tracking has a lot more to do with the awareness it creates around your eating than it does with actual calorie measures. And having a computer on your wrist definitely has the potential to increase your eating awareness. And, uh, and that doesn't seem to be a thing yet on the watch. Um, I think another area that's interesting is sleep habits. And, and uh, because, you know, getting the right kind of sleep and getting enough sleep has, has, has huge impacts on your health down the road. Uh, I think Apple releasing the bedtime alarm in iOS 10 is an example here of, of encouraging better sleep patterns. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, essentially, um, the, the alarm app on the iPhone in, in iOS 10 has been updated so that you'll actually get an alarm telling you to go to bed, not just one waking you up in the morning. And getting an alarm telling you when you need to go to bed, you know, hopefully encourages better sleep patterns. And again, having that on your wrist is, is even better than, you know, having it on a phone that's, you know, uh, at, at, on, a, on a nightstand or in your pocket or whatever. But that's all sort of more sort of general fitness related. When we talk about specific health behaviors and treatments, a computer on your wrist has huge advantages. And so, for example, asthmatics can, can get a better sense of their behaviors and what tend to lead to asthma based on the kind of data that the watch already collects but also continues to collect. And in fact, it's already being used by researchers. Um, in asthma. Uh, epilepsy also has a, a, a bunch of potential. And there's, again, already research happening using, uh, using Apple's research kit to try to figure out and even predict epileptic seizures. And in fact, you can report for those whose epilepsy has some early warning signs, they can actually report that to loved ones using the watch so that a oh, loved one can know, oh, you know, so-and-so might be encountering a seizure, seizure either now or, or in the immediate future. And that is very, very cool. Uh, we talked a lot about diabetics. Um, you know, being able to track your diet relative to blood sugar is, is a big deal. And the watch can make that a lot, a lot simpler in the ways we talked about. Medication tracking, uh, it is a huge problem in medicine that people don't take the prescriptions when they are supposed to and at the right amounts. And again, the convenience of having a computer on your wrist changes that dramatically. Um, related to medication tracking is also injury recovery and physical therapy. Um, you know, a lot of people are supposed, they're going through physical therapy, are supposed to be doing certain kinds of exercises on a certain schedule, and the watch has the potential to be a more rigorous reminder and encouraging tool for that. Um, and then one area that I think is really fascinating for the watch to be useful, and one that I haven't seen much about and I haven't even read very much about, it, although I looked around, is the use of, of the watch in, in, in improving mental health. Um, you know, when you think of the mental health struggles that people have, especially related to things like depression, there have got to be some fascinating creative ways where having a computer on your wrist and the convenience and immediacy of that could have really dramatic mental health benefits for people. And it's an area of health that we often don't talk about. And Apple seems to be sensitive to this as a direction to go because they, you know, with the announcement of WatchOS 3, they have that Breathe app that's, encouraged, that's encouraging people to reduce stress and clearly is oriented not just for physical health but also mental health. And I think we have yet to see, I, I don't even think we have a sense yet of the full potential of the watch when it comes to mental health issues. 
you know, I, none of these involve an extra sensor, though. Like all these examples I gave have to do with the watch measuring and encouraging behavior rather than, than measuring physiological uh, aspects. And someday there may be a super device like an implant that everybody gets that measures all sorts of things today that are hard to measure. Um, you know, but even if that's what it is, it's not going to be built into the Apple Watch. It's going to be something separate. You know, in the meantime, the watch, I think, has has a ton of room to grow from the behavioral perspective as a useful health and fitness device. And, and you know, I think over time, the narrative is going to continue shifting that way, that it has a lot more to do with measuring and encouraging the right behavior um, rather than just measuring things like, uh, you know, what we wish would be like blood sugar levels. So I, I think as a health device, there's still a lot of room for the watch to grow, but it's not going to be because of fancy new sensors that are built into it. Interesting. Great. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Appreciate you taking the time to research that and then share your findings with us. Um, let's move on to our third segment today, and that is um, to talk about this uh, story from the last few days of a uh, Tesla car that was uh, where the driver had initiated the autopilot function. Uh, was going along a divided highway, and a tractor trailer or a large truck basically uh, pulled in front of the car from the other side of the road, so it tried to cross the road from the uh, opposite carriageway and uh, in doing so drove right in front of this Tesla and the Tesla basically r drove underneath it and in the process the driver was killed. Um, it's been in the news quite a bit for several reasons. One, this is the first instance that we know of where a Tesla with autopilot engaged um, was involved in a fatal crash. Um, secondly, uh, the crash itself wasn't uh, disclosed for several weeks by Tesla, um, but Elon Musk seems to have sold some stock between the time that he knew about it and when it was disclosed publicly. Um, and thirdly, uh, it's sparked a whole debate about autopilot and how it works and uh, more broadly autonomous driving. Um, and uh, Elon Musk has, has been very sort of robust in defending Tesla and self-driving cars in general as being safer and so on. but. Um, there's been a whole big discussion about this, and so uh, we wanted to kind of pick up that discussion here and just kind of talk through some of the ins and outs of the case. Um, Aaron, what was your kind of reaction to all of this off the bat? Well, I mean, it obviously was inevitable only because there are going to be circumstances where no computer algorithm is going to be able to, to prevent a death. Um, I think part of what makes this notable now is this sounds like it was a death that could have been prevented, but it's hard to say who should have prevented it and how. Um, in fact, I think Tesla's statement about how it, it, how the car essentially had a hard time distinguishing between the white side of this trailer truck and the brightly lit sky behind it, um, it, it felt like they were almost accusing a failure of the sensor technology that was used rather than the you know computer algorithm that was making decisions about how the car should be driven, you know, in that circumstance, and uh, in fact, if I remember it, I remembered seeing an article by the company that made the sensors involved, kind of coming to their defense, saying, "No, no, no we you know we're still good at this," kind of a thing. Mm. Um, it, 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 who we blame? It's fascinating that we're trying to figure out who we blame in this and and everything because there are thousands and thousands of auto accidents where we're not asking those questions, right? We just sort of accept them as a part of life. But now with this one very notable, notable because it's the first and so unique death with, uh, with Tesla and autopilot. Um, now we are asking all these questions. Yeah. And, and the, the statistic that's been trotted out by Musk and others who are kind of defending Tesla and autonomous, autonomous driving in general, is I think that this is the first fatality in 130 million miles of driving with autopilot on versus the US average of just under 90 million miles. So this is almost one and a half times safer, basically. So, um, you know, this, this the autopilot technology has a lower fatality rate, even with this first fatality, um, than uh, average driving in the U.S. and one of the questions that I've had about that, and I, I, you know, when the when the news was first announced, I went and tried to find some good statistics. And frustratingly, there's lots of other statistics about um, 
various factors that were and weren't present in road deaths. But one of the things I discovered was that um, you know, highway driving is actually fairly safe, and, and most accidents occur on sort of smaller and more rural roads rather than, say, in urban settings or on the highway. Um, and I, I wonder, I don't have a Tesla, I don't know exactly how the autopilot feature works, but the self-driving part of it, other than, you know, the parking part of it, um, seems to be best suited to kind of open highways, so we can go at a decent speed where there isn't traffic and where the car can largely kind of drive itself because you're on a, a fairly wide road with distinguished lanes and uh, you can move around uh, other cars as you need to, changing lanes and so on. And so I wonder to what extent the statistics are a bit disingenuous because for Tesla they focus on the scenarios where autopilot can actually be meaningfully used, whereas the overall statistics are for all driving on all roads in all road conditions, urban and rural, and so on and so forth. And so I wonder if it is to some extent a slightly unfair comparison, um, you know, benefits Tesla obviously to make that comparison. Um, we're also at such a small sample size, I mean, you know, literally the uh, fatality rate was zero before this particular crash, and now it's one per 130 million. If there was another crash tomorrow, it's only dropped down to 65 million. Um, but it could be that there isn't another crash until these cars have gone a billion miles, you know. So the sample size is so incredibly small that you really can't ascribe any sort of meaning to this per anything miles at this point. You know, once these cars have driven billions of miles, then you'll have a better sense of what averages are. But as of right now, it's, it's kind of a meaningful average, and so to, to make any kind of comparison is, is a bit silly. Um, I mean, the other thing, though, is interesting. I mean, I think undoubtedly, as autonomous cars get really, really good, um, absolutely they will be safer. I think there's no question about that, that once these, the technology advances to the point where it really can drive on our behalf and, and do that super well, um, it will do better. And, and the fact is, you know, I, there were just some new CDC statistics on this from the US today, but and uh, actually they refer back to 2013, but it's still relevant. So there were more than 32,000 crash deaths in the US in 2013. Um, and then the crazy thing about this is so uh, roughly half the deaths of drivers and passengers, uh, they weren't wearing seatbelts. So autonomous driving isn't going to do anything for that at all. You know, if you do get in an accident and you're not wearing a seatbelt, you're going to get hurt or killed much more uh, likely than um, if you are wearing a seatbelt. Um, drunk driving contributed to more than 10,000 crash deaths, so that's about a third of the total. Uh, and obviously autonomous driving may drive slightly better than you when you're impaired, but the point is you shouldn't be driving in the first place. Um, and it's not surprising that Uber was the one that tweeted out some of these numbers earlier because they, they claimed to help solve that problem. Speeding contributed to more than 9,500, so again, just under a third. Uh, and of course, you know, autonomous cars are generally set so that they don't speed. They're aware of the speed limit and stick to it. Um, and so, you know, that could help there, certainly. But there are bigger issues. I think for me, and it, there is this whole debate about safety, but I think the bigger issue is just the worry that it, by claiming to be able to drive autonomously before cars are really ready to do that, that these companies making these claims are actually hurting themselves because these stories come out and they undermine that message. And whether or not it's actually safer and, and all the stuff that I've just been talking through, I think the worry is that if companies make outsized claims and then can't live up to them, that's actually much more damaging in terms of people's willingness to trust this technology and so on. And there was a Wall Street Journal article, I think today or yesterday, about other cases where Tesla cars had failed to detect obstacles and where people either narrowly avoided or actually were involved in accidents and so on. They weren't fatal, thankfully. Um, but in almost all cases, you know, it simply failed to detect things that a human being paying attention would have detected. And so as of right now, it's clearly worse in some cases. And you would assume that a driver that was paying attention would have spotted a huge tractor trailer crossing over the highway in front of them, uh, whereas this car apparently had a hard time doing that. So that's my biggest worry is that, that Tesla and to some extent other companies are making these big claims. Interestingly, Tesla's being much more aggressive about developing and pushing out this technology. Um, there were several examples cited in some articles I read this week of GM and Volvo and others that have put cars out there, but very strict limits on how the technology can be used and very modest claims about what it can be used for. And I think those car companies just know from their own history that you have to be super, super careful about the claims that you make and your liability associated with them and so on. Oh, I think there's so much truth to that. You know, the rural road thing is really interesting. NPR did a piece on that back in 2009 um, that I dug up, and it turns out one of the most dangerous rural roads is actually Highway 6 in Utah, yeah. which is a road that, if I'm not mistaken, you drive often. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> to, to see my in-laws. Yeah, that's right. 
And that is one of the deadliest rural roads in the country. And it's deadly because of a number of reasons. Weather factors in because it gets, um, in the wintertime, that that road gets pretty dicey. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of tractor-trailer traffic that runs along there and construction equipment traffic that runs along there that makes it more dangerous because visibility can go down in a lot of different conditions. And so... You know, th- these are the sorts of things um, where to, to have a measurable impact on auto fatalities, these are the kinds of things that self-driving cars would have to, these kinds of environments that self-driving cars would have to get really, really good at navigating. Um, and they're obviously harder to navigate in general, not just for people or for computers. There's just, there's a lot more going on. Um, you know, Highway 6, and I've driven it a number of times Um you know, from one end to the other, it, there are really tight turns that you take where you're going really fast and then have to slow down to be able to take the turn safely. And in a lot of conditions where I could picture a self-driving car managing that part better, but also, um, you know, because those are tight turns, I think they're like, you know, if a, if a construction vehicle is entering in a blind spot, um, you know, around a tight turn, that's the sort of thing that even a computer is not going to be able to react to in a safe way quickly enough. And, yeah. And so it's, it'll be, you know, it, it'll be obviously really important for that to be managed really, really well. Um, otherwise, you know, some of these really sad stories are going to keep on getting in the news. Yeah. No, I think I think hills and corners in particular are really tough for these cars because they can't see around or a corner or over a hill, obviously, any more than a person can. But a person's probably more aware that one of those things is coming up and can therefore slow down or pay extra attention to, to be aware of that and so on. And, and, you know, this stuff will come in time. And, you know, with, with better mapping and so on, you might be more aware of that. And, and so the car can, can react to that better. But the other issue we were kind of talking about before we started recording, which I want to go back to, um, is, is this whole kind of paradox of how the Tesla autopilot mode works, which is that in theory it takes over for you, but you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel and keep paying attention. Um, and there's a challenge there because on the one hand, the whole point of this is that you don't have to do those things, and yet you apparently still do have to. But the very act of kind of handing over to the car in these situations means you're likely to become distracted. I saw lots of quotes from people who said they use this largely when they want to do something slightly distracting and they want the car to take over. So they want to change the station on the radio or they want to grab uh, food or drink or something, have a quick bite or sip of something. Um, You know, inherently people are going to use these in situations where they want to be distracted and and because the car is taking over they want to take the opportunity to be distracted. They want to watch something or listen to something or perhaps tune out a little bit. And, and that's the problem is this technology relies on the user uh, paying attention even when they've handed over control to the car. And in this particular scenario, you know, as I said, you would think the driver would have seen the tractor trailer crossing over, but apparently didn't. And, and there's um, suggestion that there was a portable DVD player in the, in the car and maybe he was watching the film while he was driving. Um, you know, that's problematic too. You know, at the point where these cars definitely can be fully autonomous, then it will be fine to tune out. And there's all these concept designs and things of what cars will look like when they no longer have steering wheels and people don't even have to face forward. But we're not at that point yet. And yet, you talk about autopilot, and it very much connotes this idea that you can check out completely. That's right. And it creates this, this funny tension between the idea that we have a hard time trusting these technologies to take over driving for us and yet when people actually get them in front of them they're trusting them far too quickly um you know i think that's why tesla calls this feature a beta i mean they are clearly in the mode of researching and understanding and collecting data about how self about how autonomous cars would work in the future more than they are just you know rolling this out as a feature now so that people want a tesla i I mean, the autopilot thing is, is a, is a whiz-bang cool feature, but I can't say that it would improve the ownership experience all that dramatically if you're using it the way you're supposed to, which means basically in driving posture and driving full driving attention, you know, as you would be if you were just controlling the car yourself. Right, right. Any other thoughts about all this before we wrap up? No, I mean, it, you know, we're going to be... You know, five years from now, when autonomous cars are a lot more common, and 20 years from now, when that's all they are, you know, we're going to look back at this sort of national conversation and roll our eyes a little bit. 
because any sort of fear that we will have had back then, I think, is just going to go away when the value of, of self-driving cars will become so self-evident that, that it will be the standard. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting, right? So today, you know, technology clearly isn't ready for completely autonomous driving. As you say, 20 years from now, it seems very likely we'll all be using this stuff all the time. It's just a big question about how we get from where we are today and how and, and there, uh, or then, and uh, kind of how long that transition takes, what the various um, stages are or milestones are between here and there, and, and how stories like this, frankly, hold this back or set it back, or whether people just forget about them quickly and, and the stuff keeps moving forward. I do worry that um, stories like this have the potential to set it back, and especially if the companies that make the cars and the technology tend to sort of disown responsibility for it and say that people weren't using them in the right way, um, you know, it, it's, it's worrisome. So it'll be interesting to watch how that develops. And I think that's the key insight. I think what's going to make people trust this is the, the, the attitudes and behaviors of the people behind these technologies. I think if, if we trust the people making them, we're, we're much more likely to trust the technologies themselves. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, that wraps up that third segment. And so we'll finish off the episode with our weekly pick. And again, this is where uh, Aaron and I take it in turns to recommend something that we've enjoyed recently um, or been using or, or whatever. This is not sort of paid placement. This is simply uh, organic sharing, as it were, of, of things that we've been enjoying. Um, and uh, my wife and I recently watched a, a movie. We watched it through VidAngel, which Aaron has uh, recommended before. And um, you can get it, though, through iTunes and any other sort of streaming service. Um, and it's it's a movie called Eye in the Sky. And we, we remembered seeing a trailer for this last year when it came out in the movie theaters when we were watching something else. And um, I remember my wife saying to me, that looks really intense. And I remember thinking, I really want to watch that film. Um, and so the basic premise, if you're not familiar with it, is um, that the U.S. And, U and British military together are planning to do first a capture and then uh, an actual drone strike on uh, a home in um, Kenya uh, where there are uh, terrorists hanging out and hiding out. And, uh, and the story unfolds, and I won't um, spoil things by sharing all the details, but the story unfolds in a fairly complex way. And it's really a movie about how decisions get made by the military in these circumstances and all the different things that have to be taken into account, how remarkable the technology is and from what I've read, the technology in the movie is actually very true to life in terms of what, what's actually available today. Uh, but Helen Mirren is kind of the, the lead uh, actor here. Uh, Aaron Paul is in it as well. He might know from, I think, Breaking Bad and other related shows. Uh, Alan Rickman's in it as well. It's one of the last films that he was in. Um, and there's, there's a few other faces that might be familiar to you too. But um, it's not a happy film. <laughs> I'll say that up front. It's a, it's a tense film. It's one that you, you won't be able to just relax and enjoy. It's more of a thought-provoking film than an entertaining one, I would say, but just really fascinating in terms of kind of what these decisions are like in this day and age with all the modern technology that we have and some of the trade-offs and, and moral quandaries that, that people making these decisions face. So if that's your kind of thing, then I recommend that you check it out. And the movie, again, is called eye in the sky and it came out last year and is available now on streaming services and so on so uh, go check that out thanks for being with us we appreciate you spending the time with us uh, we'll be back again next week so join us then thanks